It's time for all the attitude, all the opinion, all the information, all the debate. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Now, the Leighton Smith Podcast, powered by Newstalk ZB and nzherald.co.nz. Podcast 72 for July 15, and a week is a long time in politics. This week, we uh, guest with Dr. Oliver Hartridge, who is uh, the executive director of the New Zealand Initiative, a public policy think tank. Now, I've interviewed Dr. Hartwich before, and I knew he was good. I just didn't know how good until this long-form interview. He did not balk at anything that I raised. Why this election matters greatly, the, uh, the most important matters to keep in mind when we vote, and listen to his answer to my question on monetary stability, on gold, and on inflation measuring. We cover a lot of territory, and it's very interesting. From the New Zealand Initiative, Dr. Hartwich, a very good morning. Good morning, Leighton. Sir, I have a proposition for you. Considering the the state of um, politics at the moment and the National Party's dilemma, I asked this question even before John Key became Prime Minister. When he was in when he was in power, when he was leading the party and Prime Minister, uh, things resolved themselves fairly satisfactorily for uh, for a nine year period. Now I'm back to this question again, and I'm even deeper into it than I was before. The question is very simple, and I pose it to you. Does national actually have a reason for existing? Do they know who they are? Do they know what they actually believe? And do they know what they stand for? Interesting questions, but um, just judging by the events of the past few weeks, actually um, perhaps even longer you, you may have doubts about that. You may uh, not see a clear line, a clear set of beliefs, a clear set of principles. The National Party is very good at talking about its values and its principles, except it never quite reveals what these values and principles are. National seems to be a loose conglomerate of different people, ranging from some Christian conservatives, um, people who are probably also quite free market oriented, on the one hand, to um, people on the more urban liberal spectrum on the other, so it's a party that has become extremely wide, and that's never quite healthy for a party because um, if the party tries to cover too much terrain um, on the political spectrum, it becomes um, quite um, arbitrary in, in its positions, and you don't quite know what you're getting when you vote for that party. I've, I've got, come up with another theory that I want to bounce off you with regard to politics of the right, the centre-right. Wherever that centre might be these days, and that's subject for a discussion all on its own, but you go anywhere, you go, to, you go to Australia, Britain, Canada, the United States, and here, and there, there are issues. And I've come to this conclusion. The left works together far better than the right does. The left is after power uh, in most instances, if not all, and so they will do almost anything to work together to achieve that power and to maintain it. The right is made up much more of free-thinking individuals who don't necessarily all agree, but they fall into a similar category. But there are a number of divisive aspects to, uh, to right-of-centre politics. And if you want to take America as, a, as the prime example at the moment, you've got the never-Trumpers who are pushing hard to, uh, to get him out, and they, they're now mounting a campaign for Biden. And this disintegration of if it ever belonged together in the first place, this disintegration of um, mutual targets and achievement is a growing issue, I think. 
Yes, and I, I think um, you've actually characterized some of these problems on the centre-right uh, quite well. However, I would also say that the left, um, even though it definitely wants power, is not always very good at attaining it. Look at Australia. I mean, the Australian Labour Party didn't win the last election against Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison appealed to um, the quiet people, as he said, and he won that election to everybody's surprise, whereas the Labour Party went for just one segment of the population, typically um, in the inner cities of Australia's um, capitals. And that wasn't enough to win the whole country. Or look at Britain, how Boris Johnson won that election late last year um, with a similar appeal, not to the people on Twitter, not to the people watching the BBC or appearing on BBC programs, but to a broader public. So even though the left wants power, sometimes it has actually lost sight of um, how they could attain, obtain that power by appealing to a broader range of people than just the people filling the commentary pages in the newspapers. Yes, I'll go with that. But uh, back, to, back to National, who is National? What do they actually believe? Well, maybe we can make this a bit broader and talk about centre-right parties in general. I think there's a problem for centre-right parties. Um, maybe 30, 40 years ago, there was greater ideological clarity what centre-right meant. Yeah. Because these were also the times, of course, of the Cold War, so it was relatively clear if you were not on the left what centre-right meant, because you were in opposition to a lot of things um, on the left. You were in opposition, at least, if you're talking in a Cold War context, to the kind of um, Soviet-style um, economic management. And you were certainly, in security terms, opposed um, to Moscow and its satellites. But once the Cold War was over, of course, um, that reshuffled the cards ideologically. And so being on the centre-right didn't mean that you could any longer define yourself in opposition to something else. So the centre-right actually had to find new answers to its own identity. And that was a hard process. And you can look at what happened in other countries. Look at um, what happened in Britain, for example, after Margaret Thatcher and the iterations the British Conservative Party went through to find itself again. And to a degree, they're still looking for themselves. You could see it in David Cameron, how he was trying to shift the party, the Conservative Party, to the left and make it more appealing to uh, inner-city voters and, and make it more gay-friendly and more um, more green in some issues. Look at um, Angela Merkel in, in Germany. She has completely turned her party around and arguably she made it a centre-left party, the CDU, which was um, until 20, 30 years ago certainly a part of the centre-right. And I think in New Zealand we're seeing a similar transition with, with a national. National that used to be a party that was definitely clearly anchored on the centre-right has... Um, over the past few years, of course, try to move towards the centre, try to grab people that otherwise would have um, considered voting for centre-left parties. And in the process of doing that, it has kind of left its roots behind. And um, that, of course, makes it difficult to really understand what national still stands for. So you and, I, you and I arrive at the same point. Is it required now, as far as national is concerned, for the party to establish firm roots on the centre right, and to revert back to um, to more of its, shall we say, traditional approach to politics and to and to governance, than than it did even under under John Key, who was fairly socially liberal. Look, I, I run a non-partisan think tank, and I'm not there to give advice to parties. But when I'm looking at it just from a political science perspective and from the political from the perspective of public choice economics. What I see is a political spectrum that is getting increasingly crowded on the left. 
So we've got loads of parties that have actually shifted to the left or have always been on the left. So basically what it means is that you vacate the right side of the political spectrum. So when that happens, of course, it opens um, that part of the political spectrum to other parties. In New Zealand, um, I think what we see is that ACT is on the rise, not least because um, National has vacated that part of the spectrum. In an internal National Party opinion poll that was revealed uh, in Richard Harman's newsletter on Tuesday, it was said that um, National currently stands at 36%, but ACT has now captured 9% of the centre-right vote. So together, the centre-right bloc is if you like, 45%, but ACT is already getting 9% of that. And that's perhaps because voters feel um, disillusioned with the state of national and they're looking for a different home. So what we're seeing is actually a gradual migration of centre-right voters from one party to another. And I think national has to be careful there because um, there is no guarantee that national will always be around to absorb the centre-right vote. It could be that we'll actually see a structural seismic shift on the centre-right from one party to another. And there is no guarantee for parties um, to survive long-term. We've seen internationally plenty of examples of once dominant parties um, that actually dominated their country's politics for, for decades, disappearing. Think of the um, Socialist Party in France. Think of the PASOK, Social Democrat Party in Greece. Think of the Christian Democracy Party in Italy. These were all parties that dominated their country's affairs for decades, and they are now gone. So there is no guarantee that a party, just because it happened to have the prime minister for many decades, will always be around. If a party makes strategic mistakes, if it makes mistakes in its political positioning, it could well disappear. And I think ACT stands ready to um, benefit from that in National's case. So seeing that you um, operate on a non-partisan basis uh, with the New Zealand initiative, quite rightly, because that's your choice, there is um, this is a little path I want to I want to wander for a moment. Under Judith Collins, now that she's leader, she is the only one. Uh, people ask me um, on Tuesday morning. I got endless phone calls. Is Judith the answer? And if so, why? And some of them were were just promoting it. And the answer to me is that she is the only one to put it delicately. The only one in the party with the cojones to stand up to anybody in, in the Labour Party, anybody on the left, and especially the Prime Minister. Now, you can say that this is a sexist comment if you want, but she's a woman, so she's got nothing to hide when she goes for, uh, for the Prime Minister's jugular. Now, on that basis, is she, in your opinion, the right person? Uh, and can she, in the remaining time between now and the election, pull out a win? I think we will have to wait and see whether she turns out to be that person. But I think the characterization that you've given describes exactly the kind of politician that National would need now. A conviction politician, someone who doesn't actually care too much what other people think, what the media will write, what the people on Twitter will say. Someone who actually sticks to her beliefs and puts them out and doesn't get um, too nervous and, and too agitated when people disagree with her. I think that's the kind of politician we now want. And in fact, I think, again, over the last 20, 30 years, we have seen the disappearance of conviction politicians. We now have politicians who first need to consult with three focus groups and have two opinion polls before they know what they think. Previously, of course, we had politicians who you could wake up at 3 a.m. and ask them any question, and they would always give you a, an answer based on their principles and based on their uh, convictions. I would like to see more politicians who actually have the courage to stand up for their principles, values, convictions, without having to consult with anyone, whether it's popular or not. 
And I think that's the difference between today's politicians um, and the generation of today's politicians and previous politicians. I mean, think of um, a politician like John Howard or Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, whether you like them or not, you could have always asked them on their um, positions on any question under the sun and they would have been able to give you an answer because they had a core belief system which guided their actions. With today's politicians, both on the left and the right, it is often a bit like government by numbers. So first you commission an opinion poll, then you test it with your focus groups, and then you refine your message until you've got something that might be popular. So you never really get to the core of what these politicians actually believe in. You will always find out just what the politicians think they get away with. And that's the difference. Um, we've seen this actually in New Zealand. We know how much um, the current government pulls opinion polls and how much the government is led by opinion polls. We've also seen it in other countries. Um, Spiegel magazine, the German news magazine, had a story um, just a few years ago where they documented how many opinion polls Angela Merkel as chancellor has commissioned. And um, Spiegel magazine actually described her method of government as government by numbers. I think that's a problem. So back to Judith Collins, if she stands up to be the person she is, if she doesn't actually rely on just opinion polls all the time, if she actually just says, okay, this is what I believe and this is what we're going to do, I think she's got a chance because she will be wonderfully different from the rest of the political class that we've become so used to and probably have had enough of. I want to read you an email that came in just a few moments ago. My pick for the new leader of National would be Simon O'Connor. However, I think National has moved so far to the left they don't... I think that National has moved so far left they don't like mm. a Conservative like Simon O'Connor as leader, they'd rather lose the election. It doesn't matter who this person is um, is... is choosing or would have chosen, but it's now too late in the run-up to the election. But if I was Simon O'Connor, plus a handful of others, including a few from Labour, I'd jump ship to the new Conservatives. But the line that he finished with is the one that um, I was really applying to what you were just saying. MMP is a bad system. It empowers parties over individuals. So that the comments you just made fall into that category individuals find it much harder under MMP than um, they, they might under other systems. Yeah, um, and that's, of course, not the only problem with MMP. The problem with MMP is that you never quite know what you get. Typically, um, you end up with a coalition government and then you can blame everything else on your coalition partner and you never really have to stand firm to your positions because you can always find some justification for compromise. And again, if I may bring you an international example to that, in Germany, about a decade ago, there was a coalition government uh, formed of two parties. One had campaigned on increasing the equivalent of GST by 2%. The other one had said, no, no, you can't increase it at all. So the two co parties end up in coalition, and guess what they did with GST? They increased it by 3%. <laughs> so <laughs> in the end, this is what MMP does. Yes. Um, no party is ultimately responsible for what happens after the elections because you can always blame it on the arithmetic of coalition negotiations. Um, I think MMP is a lot clearer, uh, uh, first past the post is a lot clearer than that because it gives you very clear cut choices. You have a choice between typically a center left party and a center right party, they battle it out, one party wins, one party loses, and then you know exactly who is in government, you know exactly who's in opposition, you know whose fault it is when things go wrong. Under MMP, everything is possible. And so that's why I, coming from an MMP country, have always favoured first past the post because I think it just gives voters a lot more clarity on what to expect after elections. Well, there is no such thing as a perfect system as we know because it doesn't matter how good it's designed in the first place. And I'm a great admirer of the uh, the American Constitution. 
that is being, well, I'd even go as far as saying uh, attempts to shred it at the moment. Um, the Australians, I think, had a better system than we've got. Uh, they've had problems yep. with that in the last few elections. So there's no such thing as perfection, but you can only you can only do the best that you you think you can. So let us let well, us. You want to comment? Yep. Well, um, if you want to bring in Australia, I think Australia. Um, the problem with Australia is, of course, the Senate. Um, I think a bicameral system is a good idea, but not in the way that Australia is constituted. And in general terms, actually, the one system that historically I, I found very appealing is the traditional British system with a bicameral system, with a House of Lords that is appointed, not elected, which sees itself as a repair shop for shoddy government legislation, but then backs down when there's conflict with the elected commons. And the commons elected, of course, on a first-past-the-post basis. So I think traditionally the British model has actually served Britain quite well. It is, it is a pity, of course, that in Britain we have seen the politicization of the House of Lords in the last few years. Um, previously, it would have been unthinkable in the House of Lords to even say something like, we on these benches, because there was no party politics in the Lords until maybe 10, 20 years ago. And that started mainly with the Liberal Democrats, because they saw it as their power base. But I think if I had to pick one system, it's not perfect, but it's getting close to it, it would have been the traditional Westminster system. Interesting. Let me uh, direct attention now to uh, this coming election and the policies that are going to be debated or are certainly being pushed by, by some, in this day and age, you're always hearing, doesn't matter where it is, which country, this is the most important election of a lifetime. It's the most important election for decades. Where would you put this election for New Zealand? Well, we, we always say that. Um, and I cannot recall a single election, not here, not anywhere else, that was not classified as the most decisive election of a lifetime. But having said that, I, I think there is still a good enough reason to say that this election really matters because we are in the middle of an unprecedented economic crisis. This crisis really blows everything out of the water we've experienced in the last 60, 70 years. If you really want to have an international uh, historic uh, comparison, you would have to go back to the 1920s and 30s. So this election really matters. I think our circumstances are extremely challenging on the economic front. They are challenging on the geopolitical front as well. We have now a rising conflict, of course, between um, the West, if, if it still exists, and China. So this election happens in the context of all of these developments and also, of course, some growing cultural wars um, that we see, and especially around uh, the issues of race, um, climate change, gender. So this election happens in very difficult times. And so, of course, this election matters. And I think it matters because New Zealand needs to define its place for the future. It needs to define a pathway out of this economic crisis. It needs to define what kind of country it wants to be. So, of course, this election matters greatly. I think the, um, the, the comment about this is the most important election of our lifetime has legitimacy because it seems to me that practically every, if I think back, every election actually brings on something new and you might say even bigger to deal with than the previous one. Or the one before that. So it's like climbing a it's like climbing a slope, if you want. And every time we we go to the polls, there is more serious stuff to deal with. And I don't think anybody would argue, certainly not you or I, that uh, this election has more serious stuff to deal with than anything we can remember. Yes, that's right. The problem is um, that we have too many elections in this country, so we never really have enough time to reflect properly on policy. I've been in New Zealand now for eight years, and I've actually followed New Zealand politics from um, abroad before. My impression is actually that New Zealand um, 
election campaigns are typically quite shallow. So we're focusing on a few sideshows in election campaigns. I mean, think of um, record, secret recordings between John Key and um, John Banks at the time, or think of um, Nikki Hager's book, Every Election. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be much more desirable for the country to have a decent conversation about the really uh, important issues in the long run, such as productivity, such as the state of our education system. Do we want to integrate further with the world economy? Do we want to have more foreign investment or do we really want to keep it as restricted as it is? These big discussions never really happen in election campaigns. Election campaigns in New Zealand are strangely policy-free and focus on just a few personality issues and, as I said, sideshows. And then we have them, of course, every three years, which is also quite an anomaly internationally. I think New Zealand would be far better off having elections just every four or five years and giving politicians a bit of time to really think about policy properly and implement things properly rather than rushing stuff through the last minute because the electoral term is so short. So um, elections would be a wonderful time for the country to come together and have a discussion about its future, except in New Zealand election campaigns, it practically never happens. I'm going, to, I'm going to mount my usual argument, and that is that uh, three years is not too short a time if you've elected a bad government. Yep, but, um, okay, um, I'm not the greatest fan of the current administration because I think uh, it lacks in executive capacity and strategy. And yet, I think this government could have been a lot better had they not rushed things through. So I would even want to give a bad government a bit more time to at least uh, get its stuff through properly. So I think um, I would take the risk of keeping a slightly um, bad government in power for a bit longer, but um, it would also give us a chance, of course, to give, keep good governments a little bit longer and give them more time to implement their agenda. Three years, I think, is just too short. Well, I'll then introduce my second argument, and that is that, okay. uh, and you touched on it a moment ago, and that is without engineering an additional check on the power of, um, of, a, of a parliament, uh, I think it would be dangerous, but you uh, you mentioned yeah, you mentioned an upper chamber, and I and I'd I'd be very happy about that. I would be very happy about an upper chamber. I'm not sure whether an upper chamber necessarily would have to be elected. Look, I started my um, professional career as an advisor in the House of Lords, uh, so I actually saw the operations of the House of Lords from inside, and I'm still deeply impressed by what I saw back then. So this was um, a body um, which basically worked almost for free. I mean, if you're a lord or a baroness, you don't really get much money for sitting there, but you actually dedicated your expertise, sometimes your life's expertise, decades of expertise to the issues um, before parliament. And very quietly, without actually getting much media attention, the lords were doing a fantastic job of just fixing poorly drafted legislation and actually making sure that... um, the laws coming out of Parliament look better and are a bit better designed than the kind of typical stuff that we get through a unicameral Parliament in New Zealand. So I think, um, well, first of all, I agree with you. We need more control. We need more checks and balances. A second chamber could deliver that. But I don't think a second chamber necessarily has to be elected. And quite the opposite, actually. Having an elected second chamber could actually lead to more conflict because both chambers could then claim legitimacy when in fact it should be quite clear which of the two chambers is actually finally running the show. Let me spring a question on you from out of left field. If you were organising a a system that was going to be the best it could be, in your opinion, what would be the anchor, the one, what would be the core of it, one one thing? I think it has to be checks and balances. 
That's the old um, principle, of course, of um, American constitutionalism. It is also a principle that I grew up with when I grew up in Germany. I mean, for very good reasons, um, checks and balances were written into the basic law, the German constitution after the war, because um, Germany had made experiences, very bad experiences, with totalitarianism and with one party running everything without any checks and balances. So basically, the whole constitution was designed with the idea of um, making sure that unbridled power never happens again. And um, I'm not entirely sure whether I think a country should have a written constitution or not, but if it has a written constitution, it should start with an enumeration of basic fundamental rights that cannot be altered, and it should also spell out quite clearly um, how the division of power is organized between parliament, second chamber, and the constitutional court checking on um, the observance of those rules. So if I were to design a political system, it would be a system like that. On top of that, a political system, I think, deserves something that you cannot legislate for, and that is a vigilant public and an informed public. And again, I think in the last few decades, we have seen a decline in the level of informed debate, a decline in the level of civics um, and and political knowledge. Um, We have commissioned an opinion poll at the Museum's Initiative, which we are going to release in the next few weeks, where we just want to document the level of political knowledge in New Zealand and the results, um, though they were not surprising, really, um, they were still shocking enough because people couldn't even name um, senior members of the cabinet. They didn't quite know how the um, practical constitution really works. They couldn't answer the simplest questions on New Zealand's um, foreign policy relations. So um, I think for democracy to work, regardless of the political system you have in place, you need an informed public and you need to have a decent media. And in New Zealand, I think um, we have moved away from both. Geez, that's a good answer. It's a very good answer. I would base mine, just by the by, on freedom and liberty and everything else would follow. That's Well, yes, I mean, that is um, my core belief system as well. But I think if you believe in freedom and liberty, you would have that enshrined, of course, in the um, catalogue of human rights, starting um, with property rights. I mean, in, in Germany, actually, it starts with um, a wonderful phrase, wonderful constitutional prose in the basic law that um, human dignity is inalienable. Uh, to protect it is the purpose of all of states, the state's power. Wonderful. Wonderful constitutional prose. And then, of course, you go through the enumeration of all the fundamental tenets of a liberal demo- democracy. Protection of property rights, freedom of speech, of thought, freedom of association, of religion, of everything. And if you put this under the banner of protecting human dignity and saying the state is not there for itself, the state is there fundamentally and solely for the purpose of protecting individual human dignity. That's a wonderful way of actually phrasing why we have government, why we have a state. The state should never be an end in itself. Let me short-circuit the answer to the question I'm about to ask and then get your your comment. Why is it then that there is so much throughout the Western world, uh, specifically the English-speaking world, why is it that there is so much assault and successful assault on some of those basics, freedom of speech. I did a, had a discussion with um, Nick Cater from, um, from the Australian last weekend, uh, last week rather. We are losing the freedom to think. And then you can, then you can move into all the other areas of, um, of what I would hope that most people still think are basic facts, rights and appropriatenesses 
nevertheless, they're under assault and they, the people who should be defending them are collapsing. I don't think we have enough time to go through all of the different reasons uh-huh. why um, the West is in decline. Um, for me, I think it comes down to that lack of a confrontation with a visible enemy, um, which previously sharpened the minds. Um, go back to 1989, 1990, the fall of the Berlin Wall and Francis Fukuyama and his essay on um, the end of history. Now, Fukuyama actually came to the conclusion at the time, first in a smaller essay, later expanded into a bigger book, where he said, well, actually, we've seen how history has played out and we have seen that liberal democracy has won. The West has basically won against the challenge from Soviet Russia. And, and that was the end of history for him because it fundamentally demonstrated that freedom and democracy and free markets and all of these Western institutions won and worked. The problem is actually that for a lot of people today, this is not only a distant memory anymore. They wouldn't have a memory of this because they don't know history. So previously, the confrontation between the Western system and the Western belief system and the principles of the West was quite clear because people experienced it on a daily basis. And I grew up in West Germany, and I, I remember um, actually seeing the Berlin Wall um, standing in front of it in 1988 when, when it still existed. And I knew what the confrontation meant between the different concepts of freedom and, and oppression. But for a lot of young people today, um, they wouldn't even know about it. Um, they wouldn't have heard about it in the history classes because there are no history classes in New Zealand schools. So I am shocked when I talk to young people how little historical knowledge they have, how little they actually know about the culture which has actually shaped their country and our civilization over centuries, millennia, if you like. So I think without a proper knowledge of history, we are bound to drift into a state where we simply don't know who we are anymore and where we just fall for the latest slogan and for the latest fad and for the latest fashion because we have actually, actually lost our foundations on which we stand. And I think that's a dangerous process. So I think if you really care for what Western civilization once stood for, you should actually go back to teaching history. It is shocking, actually, to see in opinion polls around the world how many young people, you know, the Gen Y and Gen Z um, people, believe that socialism is a wonderful um, alternative to our existing system, when they would have no idea what socialism actually meant in practice in Russia, in China, um, in other places that have experimented with it. So I think we need to really go back and relearn the roots of our civilization because otherwise we will lose it. Do you think that's by accident? To a degree. I think to a degree this is by accident um, because people think, well, why would this matter any longer because we've left this old confrontation behind so they wouldn't even see the practical relevance. Some of it, of course, is not by accident because for people on the left, of course, this is uncomfortable being confronted with the failure of socialism in the past. But by the way, I don't want to make it a party political issue. Back then, when the Cold War was still with us, um, so before the fall of, fall of the Berlin Wall, you had politicians in center-left parties who were also at the same time totally anti-totalitarian and totally embedded in the Western culture. And I can think of no better example than Willy Brandt, um, the West German Chancellor, who was, of course, himself a refugee from Nazi Germany. Actually, he escaped to Norway at the time, returned to Germany and became a social democrat politician and leader. And he was perhaps one of the most free-thinking, liberal social democrats you can imagine, and a complete opponent of um, socialism and communism. 
and someone who is mayor of Berlin, West Berlin, of course, saw how the wall was built and fought his whole life for this wall to disappear again. So I think there was an anti-totalitarian, anti-communist sentiment in center-left parties back then, which unfortunately we have um, now also lost. So center-left parties have changed their nature and their characteristics, unfortunately. Do you think we've reached in the West a a level of of lifestyle that is unquestionably the best the world has ever seen? And we've reached a point where you're born into this world now, you think this is the way it always was, and I could give you umpteen examples, but so could you, of course, and there is nowhere left left to go. If you think that... um the level of affluence that we have achieved um, makes you lazy and just takes, makes you think of it as a given, as, a, as something that you can take for granted. I think that's probably right. And then once you have actually reached that position, um, you think that anything goes and you can just legislate for things that you want to have changed. It's also mixing then, of course, with a, um, a bit of a naive belief in the ability to just change things at will as if there were no opportunity costs involved, for example. So take the whole green agenda. I think, you unfortunately... Read, you read my mind. Well, um, if I'm looking at the green agenda, I mean, I mean, even if you are on the centre-right, if you are a classical liberal, if you are a free market economist, people like that typically appreciate um, the value of the environment. It's not as if we wanted to live in a degraded environment. The difference is actually that we think there needs to be a proper policy to deal with that. There needs to be an assessment of costs and benefits, for example, when it comes to dealing with uh, pollution and dealing with external effects. And we have actually, in economics, built up a very good framework for thinking about how to deal with environmental issues. Um, Unfortunately, what happens in today's um, dialogues on environmental policy is something completely different. It becomes a morality tale. Um, It's no longer a question of economics, how we deal with pollution. It becomes a morality tale on how we can kind of regulate it. Give you an example. We heard from the Green Party over the weekend uh, new proposals to deal with carbon emissions. So they want to install um, solar roofs, they want to ban coal, they want to regulate all sorts of individual things um, relating to carbon emissions. Now, that, of course, doesn't make any sense because the very same Green Party has just legislated for a hard cap in the emissions trading scheme. So basically what it means is that we have already legislated the total amount of carbon emissions for the foreseeable future. So whatever you do after that, of course, if you're trying to subsidize things, if you're taxing things, if you're regulating things, you will never change the total emissions uh, target because that has already been legislated for. All you do is you change the price of the emission certificates in economic terms. So just by pointing that out as an economist, you show this this whole approach is absurd because you're pretending to do something for the environment, but you have zero effect on carbon emissions. And yet the Greens, of course, and the supporters feel good about what they have just announced because it makes them feel good, whether it has an effect or not. So I think we need to have a much more rational discussion about policy and how we actually achieve stuff. But that to do that, of course, takes economics. It takes a bit more of a rational view of politics and policy. And unfortunately, that's not where our debates typically go. Our debates are driven by emotions. Our debates are driven by slogans, by morality. And it takes sometimes half a minute or a minute to explain how things work to the average voter. But that's the time that they don't have these times, unfortunately, anymore. Well, I think that um, what the Greens are showing at the moment uh, with their policies for this election is uh, they're they're giving weight to the argument that they're the Watermelon Party. Green on the outside and red on the inside. It's a very old saying. 
In fact, it's out of date, yes. but nevertheless, they seem to want to revise it because more than anything else, policies are looking at financial, the financial social situation rather than, rather than the, uh, the environment. And I'm referring, of course, to their wealth tax. I'm referring to uh, the universal basic income, whatever form it might take. Uh, modern monetary theory, which they all seem in favour of. I mean, the I can't use the language to describe how I feel about any of those, but particularly the uh, modern monetary theory and the universal basic income, because they are both insane. I formed a term a while back, and I, and I came up with this term of um, economic gravity, and you can't fly against it, and all of those things do. Indeed. Um, I mean, you can try it, but you will crash at some stage. Yes. Um, Very soon. If you want to get out, well, yeah, I mean, moder modern monetary theory, um, I mean, it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not modern, it's not monetary, and it's not theory. Um, first of all, it's not modern because um, these cranky ideas on just printing money and just giving it out have been around for a long time. I mean, going back to um, John Law in the, um, I think it was 17th century, who tried that. Um, and of course, it was tried historically in Weimar, Germany, and in Venezuela, and in Zimbabwe. And we know how these experiments typically end. So it's not modern. The idea that you could just print your way out of trouble has been with us for a very long time. It is um, not monetary, by the way, really, because really what the proponents of modern monetary theory want to achieve is actually something fiscal. They think that government should be able to spend as if there's no tomorrow. So it's not really about money. It's actually about propping up government spending. That's something completely different. And it's not really theory, because basically what it comes down to, it's a form of activism. So um, these modern monetary theory cranks, I would say, are really dangerous. But they're really just the most dangerous end of that spectrum. You just have to look at what not modern monetary theory cranks are proposing, but what central banks around the world are doing. And you can see that we're moving away from the world of central banking that, um, again, existed until 20 or 30 years ago, where the primary responsibility of a central bank was monetary stability. Uh, and nowadays, central banks around the world are trying to solve all sorts of other problems. I mean, look at the ECB. That's probably the best example currently to look at internationally. The ECB has now taken climate change as its, as its um, most important um, issue. Mm -hmm. So, Christine Lagarde said that in using her um, asset purchase program, she wants to achieve um, climate change objectives. Again, the European Union has an emissions trading scheme, so the total amount of emissions in Europe is already predetermined. But that doesn't stop uh, Madame Lagarde from introducing policies to affect climate change when she is actually in in charge or should be in charge of monetary policy. The same happens, of course, in New Zealand with Adrian Orr at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Again, he should be in charge of just price stability. He's been given another target, of course, by the government. We should also look at sustainable um, employment. I think that target, again, doesn't make much sense. But now, on top of all of that, he tries to achieve all sorts of other social um, objectives. So he tries to do something for the Maori economy, he tries to do something for climate change, for diversity, for inclusion, for whatever. And, you know, whether you agree with these objectives or not, but these are not the objectives of a central bank. A central bank should be tasked with just making sure that the monetary system works, price stability is guaranteed, and that's about it. And for everything else, we should have politicians. So I think modern monetary theory as the most extreme form or the craziness of today's central banking um, environment, they're taking us in the wrong direction. They're dangerous because they are really jeopardizing the stability of um, money in the long term. 
What is your thought on um, corporate virtue? It's something that that has caught on around the world. It's caught on here in New Zealand. There are a good 50, 60 uh, uh, CEOs in this country who um, who have joined forces. To me, it's groupthink. To me, it's uneducated. And to me, it's wrong. And t- attached to that, the, the newest idea, and that is the introduction of um, greater responsibility on corporations, uh, separate and in addition to whatever responsibility they have to their shareholders. Yes, I think it's a worry. I should say, of course, that a company, of course, should always play within the laws of the land. So a, country, um, a co- company, of course, has to behave legally. A company also, of course, has to keep in mind what its customers expect from it. So sometimes it's not enough just to behave legally, but um, if you're behaving grossly unethical but still legal, you will lose your customers. So companies, of course, always well advised to take all of that into account. That said, the ultimate purpose of a company is not to um, fulfill any greater social goals. The ultimate purpose of any company, any business, is to make money, to make a profit. That is the purpose. And um, I'm very influenced here by the American social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who argued quite forcefully in a speech a few years ago that we have to be very careful not to confuse the purpose, the telos of an organization or of a profession with the telos of another organization or profession. And I just want to explain what that means. It's a concept going back to Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy. So the telos is... If you have um, a knife, of course, the tellers of a knife is to cut. So if a knife is blunt and it doesn't cut anymore, it can't be a good knife. In a similar way, a company is there with a tellers to make money, to make a profit for its shareholders. If it doesn't do that, it cannot be a good company. What we're doing now is, of course, we're confusing the tellers of different um, professions. And unfortunately, that makes it impossible really for professions to still perform well. Give you a practical example away from corporations. The tellers of people in the medical profession is to heal. If you give them the tellers to make a profit, they will probably not heal that well anymore. Or if the tellers of judges is to make sure that justice prevails, if you give them a different tellers and say, no, actually forget about justice, um, make it social justice or make it environmental justice, they will no longer actually fulfill their task of making justice prevail. And that's why I think we have to be very clear when it comes to defining what organizations, what professions are for. They should stick to their telos because otherwise, if you're mixing the telos of one organization with another, you're getting muddled outcome and you're not actually serving the purpose that these organizations were once established for. And that's why I think corporations should be very careful not to lose sight of what they're actually about because they are no longer true to themselves. With regard to this election, tell us what you, what you think are the most important. Give me five things that you think are the most important things for the voting public to consider. Five, six, three, doesn't matter really. I just picked a number. Okay. okay. Um, I think um, what really matters in the long run for the country is to lift our abysmally bad productivity record. It really strikes me, I've been here for eight years, but um, I've talked to people who have been here a lot longer than I have, and they tell me that um, for the past 30 years, New Zealand economists have kind of resigned to this productivity paradox. On the one hand, our economic and um, political institutions are actually quite good um, by international standards, so we should be outperforming the OECD on income per capita. On the other hand, of course, we are lagging behind. 
So we should be about 20% ahead of the average income in OECD countries, so world's most developed countries. And in fact, we're now trailing by about 20%. So we have to fix the productivity paradox. We have to fix our productivity. How do we do that? Well, I think there are a few ways in which we could um, um, move forward. One, that's a very long-term vision, is education. I am actually appalled by the state of education in this country. For years, different governments have actually um, deluded themselves and the public by thinking that everything is getting better because we have uh, improved NCA pass rates. Well, um, the NCA pass rates really don't tell you that much, unfortunately, because the whole NCA system, of course, was designed with the objective of um, obfuscating failure. So everybody should get a certificate at the end of the school career, which is a kind of a noble aspiration, but it would be nice if they learned something as well before they got the certificate. So you now have a system where you have 9,000 courses under NCA and you get credit points for preparing a microwave dish, for example. And so everybody gets a certificate somehow. Unfortunately, our students don't learn anything anymore. And you can see the discrepancy between NCA and what really happens in our schools when you look at PISA. So the International Education Benchmark Study, PISA, also organized by the OECD, shows that in the core subjects we've been falling and declining in our performance for the last 15 years, at the same time that NCAA pass rates have gone up. So that suggests to me that we've got a problem in education. It is further underlined by um, studies, for example, by the Tertiary Education Commission, which pointed out just a few years ago that 40% of our NCA level 2 graduates, so people who spend 12 years at school, are functionally illiterate and enumerate. We have to do something about this. We have to reform the NCA system and make it um, much more geared towards teaching the basics in numeracy and literacy. We have to actually give our schools a different kind of curriculum. Currently, this is a relatively vacuous curriculum. We should prescribe again what we expect students to learn at school. And we could probably take a leaf out of the education reforms that uh, the previous British government under Michael Gove as education minister did in the UK. So I think education has to be fixed in the long run. And I think once we do this for our primary and secondary students, this will have an impact, of course, on our tertiary students at university as well. And by the way, I don't, don't think for a moment that everybody needs to go to university. I think I would also reform vocational training because I think we should, again, learn from some European countries that have dual education. So combined um, vocational training course between further schooling and on-the-job training directly in companies. So education is my number one thing I would do. The second thing I think New Zealand needs to fix is the housing market. It is a scandal how expensive housing is in this country. In a country that uses less than 1% of its land for development, it is a scandal that in Auckland you have to pay 70 or 80% of the price of a typical family home for the land component in it. It should never happen that way. The reason why housing is as expensive as it is, well, there are many reasons. I mean, we have building materials that are too expensive. We have planning procedures that are too cumbersome. But we also have, unfortunately, a system of government that is way too centralized, where all the benefits of development, all the taxes generated out of development, go to Wellington and to the national government here uh, in the capital. Um, but all the costs of development, all the infrastructure spending, all the dealing with the neighbors has to be borne by local government. So unfortunately, the system where the benefits of development go to the center and where the costs of development stay with the local community doesn't work. We have unfortunately pitched local and central government against each other when it comes to development. We have to fix that. We have to make sure that local and central government are both on the same pro-development side. 
And to achieve that, I think we need to decentralize power away from central government in Wellington. New Zealand is one of the most centralized countries in the developed world. About 89% of all government taxation and government spending is concentrated in central government in Wellington. This is way too high. If you want to have a rescue plan for democracy and a plan for economic development, we should actually devolve decision-making and um, planning powers to local government. The third point I would um, raise in is our integration into the world economy. New Zealand believes we are a free trading nation. We are one of the pioneers of free trade. Well, that may be true to a degree, except we don't trade enough. We are not trading nearly enough um, of our GDP compared to, to other small developed economies. And unfortunately, we're also quite close when it comes to foreign direct investment. I understand the sometimes nationalistic reasons why we have restricted foreign direct investment, and actually even more so in the COVID-19 crisis. But unfortunately for the economy, um, this is bad news because we need to have better access to international capital, not least to integrate New Zealand better into international value chains. And that integration into value chains is really important to lift our productivity because we know that we have to become an even um, more integrated part of the international community, economic community, if we want to lift our game. So these are three issues I will tackle immediately. I think we could go on. There are many more things about New Zealand public policy I would like to fix. But at the very least, I would like to see these policies debated in an election campaign where we're typically just focusing on personality issues. Well, I'd like to uh, to challenge you just ever, mild, ever so mildly. Uh, with regard to mm -hmm. education, I agree with you entirely. Uh, I believe I, I have a I have developed a firm belief that um, much of the lack of education that you've been critical of has been intentional, because it's much easier to mould a, a, a vacuum or mould a, um, a, a an uneducated uh, person, child in particular. And there is an there is an example of something slightly on the reverse side, but it's the same point. And that was the book on Jacinda that um, that I that I believe you read to your your seven year old son. And that's, I did. And, that's, and that's a brainwashing exercise. That's, that's my opinion. I don't know how much you can actually hold um, the Prime Minister responsible. No, no, no. no I'm, not, I'm not laying blame anywhere, but, oh. but in and of itself, that's what it is. Oh, that's, that's certainly how it read. Um, and apart from that, it was boring. He didn't want to read it again. That probably saved you reading it to him again. Well, except um, as a reward, I now have to read him Captain Underpants stories. <laughs> Anyway, with regard to um, the effect of COVID-19, because we haven't touched this and I'd like to at least briefly, how do we dig ourselves out of the massive debt hole that, we have, uh, that we've placed ourselves in and I can only see it getting gigantically bigger in the immediate future? I agree with uh, you. Um, I think the best way to get ourselves out of the debt hole is uh, not to spend too much in the first place. I'm really concerned with a lot of the spending that's just been announced or that is about to be announced because we are not seeing enough cost-benefit analysis. If the government spends money, it should do so only after a rigorous cost-benefit analysis. We want to make sure that the money we're spending is actually getting us bang for a buck. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. We don't have regulatory impact assessments because they've just been suspended by this government. And so I think the quality of spending is a concern. I mean, the quality of spending in New Zealand has been a concern for a long time before COVID, but the amount of spending that we're seeing now actually makes it even more worthwhile to really pay attention to what we're spending our money on. 
Apart from that, what you can do is, of course, you can try to grow out of the debt. Um, and that would be my pref preferred option rather than to increase taxes and, and to try to repay the debt with higher taxes on income or in the future on wealth, perhaps. I think we should really try to create enough growth to get us out of this crisis and to get us out of the debt. And again, I think there are international historical examples that can show us and give us an idea of how we could achieve that. I found the rhetoric around COVID quite interesting because especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of rhetoric about this being some kind of war against the virus. And there was a lot of very martial um, rhetoric used in describing how COVID is having an impact on our societies and economies. Well, if that's the case, we should probably also then try to learn from previous post-war recovery phases and, and see how countries actually got themselves out of the disaster caused by previous crises and wars. And the one episode I'm thinking of in particular is, of course, the Second World War, not least because I'm German and I worked in Britain, um, but because I think it really provides us a wonderful illustration of the different approaches you could take to recovery. So in 1945, of course, Winston Churchill had just won the war. But two months later, he was kicked out in the general election 1945 in July. And he was replaced by Clem Attlee. Clem Attlee, of course, the Labour Prime Minister. Why was Churchill kicked out? Churchill was kicked out because the British believed that having won the war against Germany, they should now win the peace as well. And to win the peace, the British believed that the government should now use exactly the same means that won them the war, namely national mobilization. All forces actually geared towards this one goal of winning that peace. And so what they did was they nationalized. They nationalized whole industries. They introduced the welfare state. The NHS is a part of um, that system, the National Health Service. They um, nationalized the Bank of England. They introduced all sorts of regulations and currency controls because they believed that only strong planning, strong national mobilization could actually win Britain that peace. Now, we know how that ended. It ended in the 1970s. It ended with a three-day working week because uh, they didn't have enough electricity. It ended with a bailout from the International Monetary Fund. It ended in 1979 with the winter of discontent and Margaret Thatcher took over and had to clean up the mess of three decades of British mismanagement after the war. So that was the British story. And on the other side of the channel, the big loser of World War II, of course, was Germany. Well, Germany took a different path. In Germany, State power was thoroughly discredited for good reasons, because the Germans had seen what state power can do and what evil state power is. And then Germany was lucky in the post-war period because the American Allied forces tasked um, an economist named Ludwig Erhard with organizing the recovery. And Ludwig Erhard was a free market classical liberal economist. So he was put in charge of the price system and the rationing system and the price controls. And one Sunday afternoon, he abolished all price controls in Germany and didn't even inform the American general he reported to. So the general got very angry with Erhard and called him up and said, well, what have you done? Didn't you know that you were not allowed to play with the price controls? And he said, I didn't play with the price controls. I abolished them. <laughs> so, so Erhard did that. He did it on a Sunday afternoon because he knew that the Americans didn't work on Sunday afternoon, so he got away with it. Mm -hmm. Then he introduced a new currency, he made sure that Germany actually followed liberal principles. And the principles were laid out by his friend Walter Eucken in a book um, a couple of years later. So a steadiness of economic policy, secure property rights, hard currency, um, 
freedom of contract. So basically the whole prescription that classical liberals and free market economists would come up with, that's what Ludwig Erhard did. And he had no other choice because Germany had no money. Germany was bankrupt after the war. Germany was destroyed and the state power was discredited. So what Erhard did was the complete opposite of what happened on the other side of the channel in Britain. The result was that by 1969, German GDP per capita overtook British GDP per capita for the first time in history, because Germany was always trailing Britain um, by 20, 30 percent. By 1969, the loser of World War II had overtaken the winner. And so this shows you that you can take completely different pathways out of a systemic fundamental crisis. You can take the state-controlled pathway to recovery, which is exactly what Britain did and where Britain failed miserably. Or you can take the classical liberal path to recovery, where you actually put the free market in charge, where you define property rights, where you let markets actually sort out the recovery, and that was Germany. And so my recommendation to New Zealand now in dealing with a kind of post-war recovery after COVID would be to follow Ludwig Erhard. It doesn't need a Marshall Plan, by the way, just in case you were wondering, mm. because the Marshall Plan was only a very small portion of that. And actually, Britain got three times um, the amount from the Marshall Fund as that Germany got. It really depends on what kind of policies to pursue. And history has demonstrated again and again that liberal policies work, and it is these liberal policies that New Zealand should employ in the recovery from this COVID disaster. I have a list, and I've made the list only while we've been talking, of things that you've touched on uh, and things that I've thought of, and we could go for another two hours. We won't. Happy to. We, well, let's, let's agree then, because I'd be delighted to, uh, to go another round with you, at least at some stage in the not-too-distant future, even before the election. But I have one more question for you. How important is a stable currency, and what place might gold have in that on the world stage? Stable currency is super important because without a stable currency, you cannot do rational economic calculation. As an economist, um, also trained in the Austrian School of Economics, um, you probably wouldn't be surprised by my position on that. I mean, what economics has actually demonstrated in the debates of the 1920s and 30s was the importance of a functioning price system. There was a discussion, of course, in economics in the 1920s and 30s about the possibility of um, economic calculation in the socialism. And um, if I could just summarize the debate briefly, it was about whether the Soviet Union could actually succeed in allocating resources properly or whether there's something missing because it didn't have a proper price system. And ultimately, uh, free market economists from the Austrian School of Economics actually won that debate because they said, well, you need a price system because otherwise, how would you know whether you should actually make not the railway lines out of gold or out of steel, because if you can't, can't put a price on it, and if you don't have a price reflecting the scarcity, you would never know which materials to use. You would never know which products to produce. So functioning price system is fundamental to the functioning of an economy. So that was the debate that economics had in the 1920s and 30s. Now, if you apply this, of course, to a monetary order, you can immediately see why a stable, steady currency and monetary policy is so important, because you need this steadiness of monetary value to enable you to do calculations over time. You need stability in your monetary system. And so it was no coincidence that Ludwig Erhard, when he instituted the social market economy in Germany after the war, made sound hard currency one of um, his key priorities. And that's, of course, why the Bundesbank, until the euro, of course, 
was so keen on making sure that inflation was fought and that mark was stable. So when you're looking at monetary policy today, I'm concerned because we are moving away from just the focus on price stability. We are doing that, of course, already in New Zealand with giving the Reserve Bank a dual mandate on employment when everybody actually in economics knows that um, central banks cannot affect employment um, even in the midterm. Mm-hmm. Maybe in, short, in the short term they can have some effects, but in the midterm it's completely ludicrous to try that via um, monetary policy. I'm also concerned, of course, with um, asset purchase programs, um, quantitative easing, because I think it, again, undermines the value of money in the long run and it probably leads to inflation. I'm actually quite skeptical about the way we are measuring inflation, because I think from an Austrian economics point of view, inflation is the money supply. It's not the price level. I I think the price level will at some stage change, but the actual inflation is the creation of extra money. Um, and you can see this in the last 10 years after the GFC. You can see that um, the CPI, um, the Consumer Price Index, hasn't actually changed that much. It doesn't look as if we're going through a big inflation period because all the money that we've created has actually ended up in asset markets. It has ended up in the stock market. It's ended up in bonds. It's ended up in house prices. So that's where the money is gone. But this is not monetary stability. So I'm quite concerned with where we're going. And since you asked about gold, I think... What's really missing from monetary policy is an anchor. Um, Previously, we had an anchor, of course, in the gold standard, which was imperfect in itself. Um, But at least until the early 1970s, uh, there were still some links back to gold, um, which Richard Nixon, by the way, got rid of in the early 1970s. Indeed. And and ever since, the last bits of the old Bretton Woods system are gone, and we are now operating in a world of monetary instability where every crisis is fought with even more even more money and where every new crisis will always be worse and more severe than the one that preceded it so we've seen this with the asia crisis um, we have seen it with the dot-com bubble burst we've seen it with the gfc we're now seeing it in COVID 19 and the response to that the answer is always to print more money to create more money out of thin air and at some stage this will not work any longer at some stage this will collapse i'm very concerned that we're moving towards that point especially in the eurozone because the euro in itself is a construction that doesn't work. So um, when you're asking about gold, gold or indeed any other metal would be a way to actually bind monetary policy to the real world and to limit the ability of central banks to just inflate um, the money supply. The other option is, of course, to try something um, slightly different. Um, Take Bitcoin, take um, virtual currencies, um, cryptocurrencies, things that you cannot um, expand at will would also limit the ability of central banks to do that. Or you could go back to Friedrich Hayek and his idea from the 1970s to have competing currencies, where currencies actually try to compete with one another and the most stable one would win because people would have trust in that one uh, rather than one that could be inflated at will by central banks. I'm not game to ask you any more questions because you give such good answers. So we have to we have to do it again in, in some considerable detail. So thank you and we'll negotiate thank you. we'll we'll negotiate another appointment. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Leighton.